Sometimes you get yourself in trouble. Sometimes we all get ourselves in trouble. And so there's an old phrase that says, quit shoveling, man. You just keep pointing on yourself. You keep getting in yourself in trouble. And as we return to our study of Job, we're introduced to a young man named Elihu. And Elihu is a puzzling character. We don't see him before chapter 32 in our study of Job. We don't see him after chapter 38 in our study of Job. He just suddenly appears on the scene. And so many scholars who study the book of Job argue, well, who is this Elihu? What role is he playing? Is he supposed to be a serious character challenging Job's thoughts? Or does he kind of serve as a sort of comic relief, easing the tension as Job has now demanded that God meet him in court, if you will, to give an account of why Job is suffering? We have repeated this many times in our study of Job over the last few weeks, that Job is unaware of what's going on with him. Why is he suffering? And because of that, Job is questioning his suffering. The theology of the day suggested that you only suffer because of wrong that you have done. Only bad people suffer. If you're doing good, then God's going to take care of you. God's going to bless you. And so this was the thinking of the day. And really and truly, many times in our lives today, that's still how we think. And so Job is demanding of God. God, explain to me exactly what it is I've done. Let me meet you in court, God. God, lay out your case. Show me, tell me what I've done to deserve this suffering. Job's friends have been hearing Job talk. And Job's friends have got to a point where they are even making up things that Job must have done because in their mindsets there must be a reason for it. And Job must have been a bad guy after all. And we just didn't know it. And so as they continue arguing this, this pushes Job further and further to demand or or to declare his integrity, his innocence. And no one's really been able to show Job why he is suffering. So here comes Elihu. And Elihu, as a young man, is is one who is certain that he can tell and, and know why Job is suffering. It must be because of Job's sins. And so... This young man, Elihu, begins to present his case as to why Job suffers and the why for human suffering. As we look at the Elihu speech, we think about how he develops his speech and his source for his claim of knowledge. We also want to think about the core of his argument. And we want to think about how this helps us address the issue of human suffering. So let's begin by thinking about the development and source of Elihu's claim to knowledge. When the narrator of Job introduces us to Elihu, he, he addresses the idea that maybe Elihu's going to come at it from a point of humility, but how quickly he loses that. And we begin to see him as an arrogant young man. And it's in that sense that many scholars believe that he offers comedic relief. Notice chapter 32, verses 1 through 5. Then these three men ceased answering Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakal, 
the Buzzite of the family of Ram burned against Job. His anger burned because he justified himself before God. And his anger burned against the three friends because they had found no answer and yet condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he. And Elihu, when he saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his anger burned. And so Elihu at least is presented in the sense of of waiting. Waiting because he had a certain amount of respect, at least at this point, for his elders. And he thought, you know what, I'll let the elders speak. They have years of wisdom. But as he listens to Job and he hears the rebuttal that these three men give to Job, he says their arguments are baseless, they are empty, and yet they're condemning Job. There is a a bit of truth, or at least a bit of integrity in Elihu's intentions as the narrator sets it up by saying he's angered because Job has spoke against God in his mind. And he feels like he needs to defend God's integrity. And so that's a good thing. He has faith in God. He has respect for God. But how quickly he turns to youthful boastfulness and arrogance. Notice what he says. He claims his humility in verses 6 and 7. So Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzzite, spoke out and said, I am young in years and you are old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. I thought age should speak and increased years should teach wisdom. So it's starting out good. I respected you guys because of your wisdom, because of your years. And I just was going to keep my mouth shut and let you guys deal with this issue. But notice how quickly he turns. Notice verse 10. Or rather, verse 9. He says, The abundant in years may not be wise, nor may the elders understand justice. So I say, listen to me, and I too will tell you what I think. And so quickly he turns. And he says, you know what, as I listen to you guys, I realize that just because you're old doesn't make you wise. And I suppose there's a little bit of wisdom in that. There are old guys that make bad decisions day after day. But see, he turns quickly from having this place of humility. I'm going to let the seniors talk because I respect their wisdom. I respect their life experience. And now he says, guess what? Now I realize that just because you're old doesn't make you smart. You might still be dumb. And so he says, listen to me. And I tell you what I'm going to think, what I think. Listen to me, because I've got some great wisdom. I may be young, but guys, I'm so smart. And he says, you guys have failed to confront Job and be able to address him. Notice verse 11. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you pondered what to say. I even paid close attention to you. Indeed, there was no one who refuted Job, not one of you who answered his words. And so it says, you weren't able to answer Job or provide answers for his claims. And so I'm upset with you, and that's why I'm going to speak. As we move into chapter 33, in verses 5 and 6, he acts as though he's so wise. And Job, because of Elihu's great wisdom, is afraid to listen to Elihu. 
Notice chapter 33, verses 5, 6, and 7. Refute me if you can. Array yourself before me. Take your stand. Behold, I belong to God like you. I too have been formed out of the clay. Behold, no fear of me should terrify you, nor should my pressure weigh heavily on you. Job, I'm getting ready to tell you some things, and I know it may be intimidating for you because I'm so smart, but don't let that intimidate you, Job. Just listen to what I have to say. Do you see how he's beginning to set himself up from, a, from an arrogant position? You guys can't answer, Job. I've got all the answers. Job, it might be intimidating, I know. You don't want to listen to someone younger than yourself, but that's okay. Go ahead and listen. And as he begins to speak from this position, he even brings himself to the point of setting himself up as if he's talking for God. Notice chapter 36, verses 1 through 3. Then Elihu continued, Wait for me a little, and I will show you that there is yet more to be said in God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar, and I will ascribe righteousness to my Maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. He has just claimed that he is perfect in knowledge. He has just claimed that he has the right kind of knowledge to say, this is what God would say if God were here. I can speak on God's behalf. So you better listen, Job. How arrogant to be able to say, I have so much great knowledge that I can speak in God's place. He has really set himself up as an arrogant buffoon. Even though some of what he's going to say sounds good, He's setting himself up as being arrogant. He's going to contradict himself. And we'll notice that as we come back in a few minutes and we consider the core of his argument. But notice how, as we look at what Elihu claims, that he almost says that he's inspired by God. Go back to chapter 32 and look at verse 8. But it is a spirit in man, and the breath of of the Almighty gives them understanding. God gives us understanding, and so listen to my words. My knowledge is coming from God, he claims. 33, chapter 33, verses 2 through 5. Behold, now I open my mouth, my tongue in my mouth speaks, for my words are from the uprightness of my heart. My lips speak knowledge sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Refute me if you can. Array yourself before me. Take your stand. Again, these verses that we've already looked at, he's claiming to have great knowledge and bordering on the point of saying, I get my information from God. God's Spirit lives within me. So the things that I'm saying, they're, they're, Joel, you can just take them as if they're coming from God. He's setting himself up as the only one to have this perfect knowledge. And so some scholars contend that Elihu may not be claiming inspiration as much as acknowledging that God is the source of intelligence within all men, and yet he has told Job, as we looked at in, in, verse, in chapter 36, one who is perfect in knowledge is with you. So listen up. 
He's not just claiming, as some scholars debate and suggest, that all knowledge comes from God and all men have that knowledge, but he's claiming that he has perfect knowledge. And that's why Job needs to listen to him. Remember, he's already blasted the three friends for not being able to answer Job, and yet he claims that he himself has perfect knowledge. The key is an element to the, to the view that sees Elihu as comedic relief, or that this is a key element that Elihu sees himself as having perfect knowledge. He's setting himself as a contrast of old teaching, or young teaching the old. He claims a superior intelligence, and he has bold arrogance, and nearly claims inspiration. So consider his argument then. He argues that God uses discipline, or uses punishment, uses suffering as a corrective means And of course, sometimes maybe God does that, but certainly not here in Job's case is that's what's happening. And so he claims that God seeks to correct men through revelation. Notice chapter 33, verses 13 through 18. Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account to all his doings? Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. In a dream... In a vision of the night, when the sound sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction, that they may turn aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing over into Sheol. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with unceasing complaint in his bones so that his life loathes bread, and his soul, his soul favorite food. His flesh wastes away from sight, and his bones, which were not seen, stick out. Some of us, our bones never seem to stick out, right? Then his soul draw nears, draws near to the pit, and his life to those who bring death. And so Elihu is saying, look, Job, sometimes God terrifies us in our dreams at night to wake us up. Sometimes God sends suffering in our physical body to wake us up. So that in the end, our soul is saved. And again, certainly God can act any way he wants. And sometimes God may act that way, but that's not what is happening with Job. Job is suffering again because as we think back to chapter 1 and chapter 2, Satan has been trying to tell God, the only reason Job follows you is because you've blessed him with all these things and you've kept him from having any bad things in his life. And God has said, Satan, you don't know what you're talking about. You can do anything you want to Job. Just don't take his life. And you'll see that Job is going to be faithful to me. We have that knowledge because we read Job 1 and 2. But Job doesn't know that's what's going on with him. His friends don't know that that is why he's suffering the way that he is. Elihu doesn't know that is why he's suffering the way that he is. And so Job is seeking to understand because he knows in his mind, I've followed God. I've been true to God from my heart. Just like Jay was saying in his lesson this morning, that he wasn't just trying to follow the letter of the law. He was trying to live out a righteous life with God. And God's own assessment of Job has been, this man is upright and blameless. 
understand what it would be like for God to speak those words about me. Oh, what it would be for God to speak those words about any one of us here this morning. To hear God say, this one is upright and blameless. That's what God has said about Job. And yet Job does not know that. And he's seeking to understand why he's suffering. And his friends have been saying, the only reason you suffer is because, Job, you must have done something wrong. And that's what Elihu is saying. Only Elihu's little spin on it is that God is doing this not as a punishment in and of itself, but he's doing this to wake you up, Job, so that you may be saved in the end. Job's other friends had called him to repentance, but Elihu's going to do the same. Elihu says God uses suffering because his mercy as a preventative to future deadly sins, to prevent you from encountering those deadly sins. Notice again chapter 33, verses 19 through 33. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed, with unceasing complaint in his bones, so that his life loathes bread, and his soul favorite food. His flesh wastes away from sight. His bones, which were not seen, stick out, and his soul draws near to the pit. His life to those who bring death. If there is an angel as a mediator for him, one out of a thousand, to remind a man what is right for him, then let him be gracious to him and say, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresher than in youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then he will pray to God and he will accept him that he may see his face with joy and may restore his righteousness to man. I will sing to men and say, I have sinned and perverted what is right, and it is not proper for me. He has redeemed my soul from going to the pit, and my life shall see light. Behold, God does all these oftentimes with men to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be enlightened with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job, Listen to me. Keep silent. Let me speak. Then if you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Keep silent, and I will teach you wisdom. Again, he says, look how smart I am, Job. But he's saying, Job, I want you to understand that that maybe, just maybe, you might be one of the lucky ones for whom God has an angel that comes and calls you to repentance. And you return to that repentance, or you come to that repentance, and because of that, God restores you to righteousness. Job, this is why you're suffering. God's trying to wake you up. Listen to my wisdom, Job. See how smart I am. If you can answer me, rebut me, do that. The difference between Job's conversation with his three friends and the speech of Elihu is, No one ever talks back to Elihu. They just kind of leave him out there on his own. Perhaps as a statement of how they see him being a fool. And so Elihu continues. In chapters 34 and 35, he's going to address the fact that God has eminence so that Job doesn't even have a right to question God. Notice chapter 34, verse 10. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. 
For he pays a man according to his work and makes him find it according to his way. Surely God will not act wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him authority over the earth, and who has laid him on the whole world? If he should determine to do so, if he should gather himself to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and all man would return to dust. And so he's making this claim, and it's an accurate claim. And it's kind of setting up what God's going to say, beginning in chapter 38. And so some scholars look at this and see, well, maybe the character of Elihu is sent as kind of an intermediate to kind of set up and lay the groundwork, kind of a foreshadowing of some of the things that God is going to say. Because God's just going to answer Job, as we see beginning in chapter 38, just laying out all of God's creative work and saying, Job, if you can address even a, a small number of these, maybe you have a right to talk to me this way. And it's kind of what Elihu's saying. But Elihu is saying, as we look here in, in these verses, who can talk to God? Who has standing based on their own power to do these things? And the answer, of course, is that no one does. But he's also saying that God is pure. God is righteous. And so God's not going to act wickedly. God's not going to pervert justice. Remember, Job's claim from, the, from chapter 4 on has been, I haven't done anything to deserve this, and yet this is what God is doing to me. And the only sense in which there is injustice is if you believe you only suffer for doing wrong. You see, if you only believe, or if you believe that you only suffer for doing wrong, then yes, you might be saying that God has acted unrighteously. God has worked, uh, acted wickedly. But if you understand that sometimes we suffer for other reasons other than for our own wrong, then you can see how God is acting without acting unrighteously or acting in a way that perverts justice. And that's what's going on. Job's not suffering because God's punishing him. God's not even suffering because God wants to remind Job to be humble. And to follow him. He's suffering because of Satan. And that's why he's suffering. Notice chapter 34, verse 31. Elihu says, For who, for has anyone said to God, I have borne chastisement, I will not offend anymore? Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will not do it again. Shall he recompense you on your terms, because you have rejected it? For you must choose, and not I. Therefore declare what you know. Men of understanding will say to me, A wise man who hears me. Job speaks without knowledge, and his words are without wisdom. Job ought to be tried to the limit, because he answers like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us, and multiplies his words against God. He's claiming, Job, you don't have standing to demand answers from God. And so the very fact that you're demanding answers from God, Job, details and describes your rebellion. He's saying, God, you don't have a, or Job, you don't have a right to question God. You don't have a right to seek an understanding from God. 
And Job's not acting in rebellion. Job's not seeking answers because he wants to be belligerent to God. He wants answers from God because he truly wants to understand why is this happening to me. Sometimes we understand and we hear people who approach suffering and seek and understand from God as if they have no right to ask God. Well, what's in your heart? Are you seeking to understand because you truly want to know from God why is this happening to me? Or are you questioning from a belligerent attitude? That's not what Job's doing. Job truly wants to understand why he is suffering. So that's what Job is doing. Finally, Elihu says that Job doesn't have a right or that God does not need to answer Job. Notice chapter 35, verse 10. But no one says, Where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of heavens? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to an empty cry, nor will the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say you do not behold Him. The case is before Him, and you must wait for Him. And now, because He has not visited in His anger, nor has He acknowledged transgression well. So Job opens his mouth emptily. He multiplies words without knowledge. Job, God doesn't have to answer you. And so don't take His silence as God being wicked. In essence, in these speeches, Elihu argues that he and his friends have a better understanding of God than Job does. And the refrain is still the same for the most part as Job's three friends. Repent and turn to God to find relief. And he's going to go on to argue in the final two chapters, chapters 36 and 37 of his speeches, that God's ways are beyond our ways. We can't understand And yet he has just claimed that he is able to understand better than Job because he's perfect in knowledge, as we saw in chapter 36, verses 1 through 4. Not only does he speak in his ignorant arrogance, but he speaks in a self-contradiction. And thus, you have comic relief in Elihu. But in speaking of God's imminence, he does reveal great wisdom. God is imminent. God does have great power. God does have standing because of all the things that he's done. But Elihu's perception is misplaced because it's tied to the understanding you only suffer for doing wrong. So how does this help us in our own understanding of human suffering? First, we have the reality of Job. He's suffering because of a test of faith. God is showing Satan that Job's faithfulness is not bound to wealth or protection. And we need to understand that our integrity and our faithfulness to God needs to be based on the fact that we trust God, we love God, we acknowledge God's imminence, God's power, God's authority, not because we expect God to give us things, not because God protects us. God does both of those things, I believe, but our faith should be based on what is God going to give me. It needs to be based on who God is. His purity and His goodness. Job never curses God, nor does he deny God. In fact, he looks to God as his only course of relief. The point is, sometimes we suffer because Satan is testing our faith. Or others have done wrong, and therefore we suffer. 
Second, we see in the friends of Job the words and the idea that we suffer because of sin. Sometimes we are disciplined in this life for the sin that we have done now. We saw that in our study of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about that extensively. But that's not always why we suffer. Sometimes we suffer because of wrongs others have done, and we just happen to be third parties to that, and we suffer too. Elihu's speeches offer a third possibility to readers. And that possibility is new to Job and his friends, and that is the idea of preventative discipline. God is doing this to wake us up, to strengthen our faith perhaps, or to prevent a future demise because of our current path. And some might again turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 9 through 12 as evidence for this. Some might suggest this is the reason why Paul speaks of a thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that God was keeping him faithful. But that's not what's going on with Job. We have the hint of an invaluable truth, which will be confirmed in the next section, that we cannot fathom all of God's purposes and wisdom. God's not making Job suffer because he's a cruel God. He's not making Job suffer because he's trying to teach Job a lesson. Job couldn't understand why this was happening, nor could he understand God's processes. But he could remain faithful to God. And we can remain faithful to God when we cling to Him and follow Him. Ultimately, God protected Job and God protects us. If you're looking for that protection in your life, you can have it by being united with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. And if that's what you need to do this morning, won't you come? As together we stand and sing.